0: Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Serena Sanuli from Stanford University on the show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you obtained your PhD in 2013 from the University Pierre and Marie Curie in France, studying chromatin changes in development with Raphael Marguerite. Uh, you then moved to San Francisco in 2014 for your postdoc at UCSF with Geta Narlikar and John Gross. And in fall 2020, you joined the Department of Genetics at Stanford University as an assistant professor and you are Chan Zuckerberg biohub investigator. And uh, you're still there today. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science?
2: Well, um, I've always been very interested in anything that was related to science growing up since I was a kid, very curious. Um, I didn't really plan on uh, doing a career in science. I didn't even know that academic career was a possibility till very late in my career path. But then things really happened naturally, organically, One things led to another, just following my interest for science. So um, at the end of my at high school, I had an interest for science. And at that time I was actually interested in pursuing, uh, in doing math or physics. But at the time there was this idea that it would be very hard to do a career with math and physics. So I started to think about biology as, uh, as an alternative. And I really liked biology. And then there was at that time a new course at the university in Italy, in Bologna, where I was, uh, I ended up going, that was called biotechnology. And that was a good mixture of biology and also Anton training in a lab to do research. So I thought it a combination of biology and something that was very manual, where you could do things with your hand, was actually very interesting, and I started, you know, I got hooked with that, and one thing led to another, then, you know, a PhD and postdoc and so on, but everything really happened organically. It didn't really plan, you know, it was just interest and following what the opportunity they were presented to me.
1: So in fall 2020, you joined the Department of Genetics here, or there in Stanford, so how was it moving during the pandemic? I think it was not easy to do that, right?
2: It wasn't uh, easy to uh, start the lab during the pandemic, but I have to say the move was easy for me because I moved from San Francisco UCSF to Stanford, which is basically a thirty-five minutes drive away. So the the move itself, the physical move, and be able to see the space and and have a feeling uh, the place was was relatively easy for me compared to people that had to move across country. Uh, But the challenges of starting a lab in the middle of a pandemic, uh, they were still there. That means not really meeting many colleagues, difficulties in hiring, and difficulties in getting the basic equipment that you probably need to start the lab. So um, it wasn't easy, but I thought was at, at the end, I'm really happy how things worked out and turned out.
1: I mean, we are recording this now in July 2021. So is your lab now up and running?
2: The lab has been up and running um, for a couple of months now. And we are uh, actively recruiting and looking for people that want to join. We are five right now. And um, and things are getting back to normal. California has been doing pretty well with the pandemic, and so we have been able to uh, be on place on site and doing experiment. And I have to say that social distancing is not very difficult when you have an empty lab. So that that helped a lot <laughs> get going and have you know people being present physically in the lab.
1: So coming to your science that centers around heterochromatin protein 1, the structure of chromatin on the atomic scale and on the mesoscale and phase separation, um, I want to start in the year 2015. Um, there you were first author on a paper about Jared 2 and the PRC complex. Um, could you briefly give a short introduction into the PRC complex and its function?
2: Yeah, I was working, actually, I joined Rafael Margarone's lab, and I was actually the first student in Rafael's lab when I joined uh, to do my PhD. And um, at that time, I was really interested in understanding chromatin regulation and the polygon group of proteins are master regulators of development. And um, they act by um, chemically modifying the chromatin by adding a specific posttranslational modification. I was specifically working on the polycomb repressive complex two, which modifies lysine twenty seven of histone H three, and I was really interested in understanding what were the mechanisms of the regulation and how those mechanisms regulated. Um, developmental processes in particular cell fate decision. So I used the stem cell as a model, embryonic stem cell as a model system for cell um, fate decisions. And I also worked a little bit using a mouse embryos. And so the group of group of protein were kind of a kind of a master regulators of development. And so I thought that there was a nice combination of kind of thinking about chromatin regulations and biological processes.
1: So you um yeah, as as I already um said that uh, you were working on Jared Two. So yeah. Jared Two is uh, so yeah. I yeah.
2: Uh it's actually sorry, I didn't mention it. the jury 2 is a cofactor, it's called a cofactor that uh, basically helps a contribute, um, helps the polycom, the core component of the polycom group of proteins to modulate their activity on chromatin. And what I worked on specifically was a post translation and modification of jury 2. So the polycom, the PRC2 complex, not only can modify chromatin itself in the instance, but it can also modify other proteins, including JERI 2. And this creates a, an interesting feedback loop that. And modulate the activity of the polygon complex on chromatin itself. So it's basically a, a factor that can modulate the function and activity of the core component on chromatin. And I think this was really a, a kind of an interesting perspective at the time when we started to realize the complexity of the regulation of the polygon group of proteins and how much the different of unity that can be part or not part of the complex can overall regulate um, the function.
1: Yeah, this is what I wanted to... Uh to mention that uh, i didn't really know cherry Two f- now from from the beginning um because it's not like in the core of the complex and then you just um pointed out that it's like a cofactor so is it when is it present or when does it interact with the prc complex
2: Oh, that's a good question. I think sequentially uh it, it's it's difficult to figure out when it comes on and off and how much the post-translation and modification of Jarrito itself influence the interaction with the polycomb itself. Um, and so and, and the other complexity has to do with the fact that a lot of this um extra subunits of the complex. Are not essential, and a lot of them can be redundant and um, compensate for each other when one subunit is missing. And so I think I can't really give you a straight answer when jury two is essential. We know it's essential for a proper function of the polygon group of prudence, and when jury two is missing, you have defects in the time of differentiation or, or self-fate decisions. And similarly, the, the Post-translational modification of very 2 the methylation also has a role in timing things and fine-tuning things uh, at the, at, properly.
1: So it's not like tissue-specific or something like that.
2: No, I don't think if they actually—I t- don't know if anybody have ever done uh, actually a widespread analysis across all the tissues. Uh, but it's clearly highly present in the, in the undifferentiated stem cell or in the embryo. Um, and I think it might just be modulated during differentiation, but I don't know if it's tissue specific.
1: Okay. Then after you moved to San Francisco, you switched gears a little bit and focused on heterochromatin protein one. So first question: How did you? How does uh, did the switch occur? Uh, so what was your thinking behind that? And uh, could you briefly characterize HP one? Um,
2: so. HP1 is interesting. I actually stay in heterochromatin, right? Because the polygon group of proteins are, uh, they maintain your repression. They are part, they, they are the key component of heterochromatin, but it's what is called facultative heterochromatin. And I ended up doing a postdoc, staying in heterochromatin, but looking at a different kind of heterochromatin that was uh driven by the heterochromatin protein 1 or HP1 proteins. Um, And differently from the polygon group of protein, the HP1 are structural proteins. That means that they don't really have any enzymatic activity. They're known to act by providing structure, by binding chromatin and creating a structural platform that mediates in silencing. Um, And so I didn't really plan on staying in the chromatin field. When I was looking for a postdoc, I was actually trying to look for something different. And honestly, actually, the person that I reached out and I applied to was John Gross at UCSF, and he had never done chromatin uh, uh, at that time. And he was actually, he's a a structural biology NMR expert. And so at that time, I was really seeking, I was trying to go deeper, more deeper, deeper at the atomic scale, molecular level, to start to have a um, atomic scale understanding of biological processes. And that's how I ended up in John's lab. And uh, when I talked to him, I thought that having, you know, a collaboration with Gita Narlikar, co-mentoring with Gita Narlikar UCSF was actually a good fit in which I could keep working on cremating, so maintaining, you know, one side of knowledge and exploring a different perspective, a different way to interrogate cremating by using biophysical methods and NMR And so I was just really interested in uh, having a different perspective, learning new skills. And um, I thought that the, the combination of John Gross and Gita Analika was basically the perfect ideal uh, project and uh, possibility to grow for me. Um, and I didn't really know what I was going towards. I had a very basic understanding of biophysics, NMR. I didn't even know about uh, protein dynamics and conformational changes at that time. So it was really um, a naive choice that I made just following the interest and also being drawn by the expertise of these two amazing labs at QTSF.
1: So what you were really looking for was not so much the biological function of HP1, but more the biophysical and and the result of the the action of uh, HP1?
2: Yeah, exactly. So when I started, um, I didn't, I just thought that in order to understand deeply how things were happening, what was going on, and how HP1 protein worked, I had to really understand the uh, atomic details of the protein itself and how this protein interact with chromatin itself. There was a bunch of models at the time uh, how HP1 protein would interact with crementin, mediate um, spreading and bridging across nucleosomes to mediate compaction. And I just wanted to figure out how that was happening at the molecular level, starting to apply technique that at the time, nobody really had applied in the context of heterocrementin. And actually had to say one of the biggest challenge of my postdoc was applying these methods that are still particularly challenging these days. Um, But I was actually in the right place to pick up those methods and uh, ended up with something that um, you know helped us understand better how HP1 protein work. But really trying to understand how HP1 protein interact with the chromatin, just having method that will give us the opportunity to really understand the atomic details of those interactions, but also understanding the dynamics, how the motions of the proteins and the chromatin uh, at that level of, of details.
1: So something that is getting more traction in the last couple of years is phase separation. And um, HP1 obviously or is, is thought to play a role in this process. So how is HP1 influencing this uh, process of phase separation?
2: Well, the the phase separation concept uh, discovery has been around for about 10 years, right, in the the field of biology at least. And um, and when I was a postdoc in Gita Narlikar's lab, they made a discovery, Gita's lab made a discovery that HP1 proteins can undergo phase separation. So it was Gita Narlikar, UCSF, and Gary Carpenter at the same time that really discovered HP1 could undergo phase separation. And so that meant that phase separation uh, could have a role in in transcription. Regulation potentially, and so I was at that time in the lab, but I was not particularly interested into this phase separation um, um, discoveries, and partially because I really realized I really saw the enthusiasms uh, that people had around this concept and the field. And like every new things that every new trend that comes up in science, I was a little scared uh, and didn't really understand the details of phase separation. So. I actually had to go into face separation just because I couldn't, avoid, I couldn't avoid it. And I had, you know, I discovered, I saw face separation in my specific system and I couldn't really entangle the HNMR the and the science that I was doing before and the face separation. So the two things had to merge and come together. Um, and while at the beginning I was a little, uh, you know, I was trying to h- kind of not hide, but l- put aside a face separation because I was more interested into the, by your physics and NMR that I was doing at the time, when I started to really open my mind and learn by people that it was were doing uh, rigorous science and trying really to understand phase separation, I kind of got more and more excited and I really you know, embrace it. And uh, I, I really think that today phase separation, at least in my biological context, really provides a new way to think about chromatin about regulation and just keep regulation. And so, I think it's really a great opportunity to think about um, those chromatin biological processes from a different perspective.
1: So, what does this mean for gene regulation, like phase separation? How can you see it or measure it? Um, so, what does it mean for the cell and, um, yeah, for HP1 maybe?
2: That's a big dilemma, how do you measure it? I think the field is still, is still trying to figure out what are the criteria and the rules that uh, we need to look for to define phase separation. And I have to say that while we are particularly good, uh, we became very good at doing that in a test tubes. things seems to be a little more complicated in, this, in cells. Uh, and partially has to do with the lack of methods that we uh, have. Those those processes are extremely dynamic and easy to perturb, and so it's very difficult to uh, make a lot of accurate uh, measurements into the cells. Few labs that actually develop new methods, but they're still pretty specific technology that are not widely available to study phase separation into the cell. Um, and then also the what adds complexity is that in vivo we have a very complex system, the nuclear environment that has a lot of proteins. And it seems that a lot of the rules that we are measuring into the test tubes, they're not exactly the same in vivo when we have a much more complex biological system and buffer into the cell. Um, so I don't have a he's easy answer. I think right now the field is really looking for answer, but what we need to do is to keep searching and have an open mind and trying to figure out what's actually going on. But we have few uh, elements that we can look for. We know that um, these proteins, um, we know about the multivalency, the importance of having multiple domains bridging and creating a network of protein interaction that are important. We know that a lot of those interaction are extremely weak and transient, and that the the sum of those interactions are actually what makes um, those this condensate, the this state separated condensate form and functions. And we know that these are extremely dynamic. And one, I think the big question that the field has to figure out is how dynamic those are in composition and functions and how the material properties of those condensate can change over time to adapt to the function of the cells. Um, but I think it's actually a very exciting time for the field because there is a lot of a lot to do, a lot of opportunities to um, move forward and understand better the process.
1: So you also published an essay to study phase-separated droplets. Um, can you tell us more about that? So this was published, I guess, several weeks ago um, already.
2: So I think you're referring to uh, a method, kind of a method protocols paper that tried to explain um, kind of a step-by-step what are how to perform phase separation assay in a, in, a, in a test tube. Um, and this, again, was one of the um, protocols that was published with the idea to guide people uh, and help people figure out what are the things to pay attention to when you perform this kind of assay. Um, there is a lot of publications and guidelines that are out there and have been out there, but I think it's really still really confusing for scientists to um, kind of figure out in the middle of all these papers that are out there, Uh, what are the things that are really important. So the idea of this protocol is really to put out there simple guidelines that people could uh, follow. If you've never done a face-to-pressure experiment, never thought about it, by reading this protocol, you could perform some of the assay and also start to think about the caveats and the limitations of those assay. I think one of the major goals was really try not only to give step-by-step experimental procedures to perform experiments, but also to have people think about the, the limitation of those essays and how much we can learn about something with one essay, but actually it's just a one point of view, one perspective, and that we need to still have an open mind at, at this stage of the face separation uh, research at least.
1: So um, the limitations might then be the ones that you just lined out, right? So that it's a test tube and in the nucleus it's it's different because you have uh, the nucleoli, you have um, other um, organelles in the the nucleus that might um, be measured or might hinder the measurement.
2: Yeah, and there is actually nuclear concentration. The concentration of proteins in the nucleus is between 100 to 200 milligrams per ml. So that's a very concentrated uh, soup. And most of the time as a biochemist, when you perform experiment and test tube, you never think about this concentration you don't even, you cannot actually reach uh, technically those concentration in a test tube. So this means that a lot of the interaction and the rules that we can measure in a test tube with a simplified system, few components, but also usually as a buffer, you use a physiological solution or you don't use a very crowded environment. Uh, Things are a little complicated. And while we do have crowding agents that can mimic uh, nuclear concentrations, it's still, it's very hard to understand how these crowding agents work and how well they mimic the nuclear environment. Um, And the interest of phase separation is we're really thinking about a kind of a field where there are a lot of different perspectives that all come together. Uh, So you can think about genome regulation, but there is also macromolecular crowding because we are thinking about a very uh, crowded environment. Uh, There is a material property, the physics of the condensate and how they might regulate, uh, you know, the the function of this condensate and transition from a liquid to a solid kind of state, how how much that is related to function. So there are a lot of different perspectives. There's the role of disordered protein regions that are also involved. Uh, we have tail There are disorder. HP1 protein has 60% of the proteins basically disordered and not folded in domain. So there are a lot of different components and field of research that are coming together. And that is partially, I think, the challenge of you know advancing the field and it's very complex. Um, but then at the same time, I also think is extremely exciting. It's going to push scientists to work together from different fields uh, to uh, really understand what's going
1: on. So I um, yeah, I had a question about HP1, which I skipped and then I want to um, uh, ask it now. Um, so um, you looked further into the function of HP1 and how it affects the nucleosome itself. Um, so what did you do there and what did you find out about the function of HP1 in the context of the nucleosome?
2: Yeah, at at that time I was, we really, um, I joined Gita's lab and John's lab, and at that time they were really, applying NMR to understand what was going on at the level of the nucleosome. And at that time they were working on a chromatin model which is called SNF2H that was is able to burn, use ATP to push nucleosome, to slide nucleosome along the DNA. And at that time they really, they started to see that when this process was happening, uh, something was going on in the nucleosome itself and changing its shape. And so changing its conformation, its shape, not only on the DNA, which most of the people have been focusing on, really learning how much the DNA was coming on and off from the nucleosome, but also they realized that the istomal cell, itself they were changing their, their, their structure, their shape. And so when I started working on that, we said, OK, we start to look at what happened in the context of heterochromatin of HP1. And the reason is that we know that chromatin gets really compacted when HP1 proteins uh, bind. And so the idea was trying really to figure out what was going on in terms of the nucleosome and when they were like stacking and packing on top of each other to create a more compacted and less accessible chromatin state. Um, and so most of you know, I was just interested in trying to focus on the nucleosome itself. Most of the time, we tend to focus on HP1 proteins and transcription factor, what is the structure. But I was really interested in trying to figure out what the substrate itself, the nucleosome, how it was responding uh, to the to the interaction with HP1, and I started to use. Um, some complementary biophysical method. I use uh, NMR. I use cross-linking mass spec, and then I use hydrogen deuterium exchange coupled to mass spec. And all these methods basically gave us a low-resolution understanding of the nucleosome conformational changes and, and structure. And what what I found is that when HP1 was interacting with the nucleosome, was changing its shape, but not only changing the shape, but completely opening up the nucleus and exposing regions of the histone itself themselves that are normally buried inside the core. Uh, and this was really surprising because it didn't make a lot of sense that in order to compact chromatin, to create a less accessible chromatin state, you're making the single nucleus itself more accessible and exposed uh, to, to the solvent. And so I was, we was really, we were really surprised and Homo was doubt the results for a while, uh, but we had three independent methods pointing out in the same direction and showing that the nucleus was opening up and becoming more available, um, exposed. So we had to really take that data and try to think what was the reasoning behind it. And that's where face separation, kind of understanding of the face separation provided has kind of a perspective to understand what could could be the meaning of this confirmation of the nucleus itself. Um, and so I really thought that, you know, coming from a biological background, uh, cell biology background that I was coming from, was really amazing to just to think how many um, atomic details uh, are in there and how much regulation is in there when we start to look at chromatin processes regulation at this atomic scale level. Um, and so it really gave me a, a different way to think about just chromatin regulation in general.
1: That's interesting that... Um normally buried uh, parts of the nucleosome get then opened up and uh, lead to compaction, obviously. <laughs> so uh, in the beginning of this interview, we were talking about that you are, your lab is now up and running um, so you can go full steam and <laughs> do the things you want to do. So what are you working on right now and what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years?
2: Um, my lab will still works on the broadly concept of genome regulation and chromatin regulation. Um, and the idea is to really bring together the biophysics, the biochemistry with the cell biology and, and, and biological function. And so I was trained as a cell biology and development biology. And then I switched to biophysic during my postdoc. And really what my lab is trying to do is bring the two parts together. And so there is a, a, a part of the work on the lab. It continues on the biophysics and applying biophysic methods, including NMR and hydrogen, deuterium exchange and mass spec to really understand the atomic details of chromatin uh, processes. And on the other side, we are trying to take this basic finding, fundamental finding in the context of chromatin regulation and explore the function in biological context. And we are exploring developmental processes, but also disease such as cancer. So there are really the two sides of the lab. There are probably around the concept of, of nuclear uh, compartments and um, atomic scale dynamics of nucleosomes and trying to really go back and forward between cell biology and biochemistry and understand uh, the, 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 the new, basically try to identify new mechanisms of genome regulation and understand better uh, those processes. Um, the goal is really to have the two sides of the lab. It doesn't just mean uh, applying different techniques but also means having a mindset where you can think about biological processes and chromatin as a biophysicist but but also as a cell biologist and try to have a very interdisciplinary group
1: yeah, that sounds very interesting <laughs> um, to finish off this interview i have two more general questions and um, the first one did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know uh, how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer
2: um, I think that the I don't think I really reached that then. I just I would say that I like every scientist probably really I faced some moment in which you know experiment were not working and you you thought you knew how the system would work and you didn't were not um, obtaining the information you were hoping to obtain. And that probably had to do for me at the beginning of my postdoc when I was trying to uh, get NMR to work in the context of nukizome and um, I think I was particularly naive when I started to work on this project. I, I think that's what it took to actually decided to work on this project. Um, but it was very challenging technically, and it was very difficult to have that work. And at that time, I really doubted that, um, you know, tech there was not the right technique and probably that I had a, made a major shift a switch in my field. And it probably was too much for me to handle. Um, but at that time, my my uh, I was lucky enough to be surrounded by a group of scientists that, by talking to, they gave me um, alternative and new uh, perspectives, and that gave me the opportunity to start to think about new methods. That's why I ended up, for example, doing hydrogen exchange and mass spec. So, start to think about alternative methods to answer the questions a question that I thought was still very interesting and really drive was driving me uh, every day. So I, yeah, I, I think that was the hardest moment scientifically because also you're investing so much time uh, and so much of your career as a postdoc before you know that that kind of work is what will decide a lot of your career.
1: So in the last 30 minutes, we have taken a journey through a scientific career. Um, can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview?
2: I think we both talked about uh, nucleosome conformational dynamics and uh, phase separation of the two things to my my recent work that is connected to those two aspects. And those are also the aspects that we are starting, we're studying currently in in my lab. Um, Maybe one aspect we can uh, talk a little bit more is the connection between the two scales. Uh, We tend to think about nucleosome atomic scale, information as one entity and then think about biological function or mesoscale regulation as two separate entities or two separate scales. And then something that I realize uh, is that the two scales are actually extremely connected and that this conformational change at the level of nucleosome itself, this opening up to the nucleosome is actually what enables the compaction of chromatin, the folding of chromatin on the measles scale. Um, and so I think this is, for me, was a very interesting uh, new way to think about chromatin regulation and realizing how much um, conformational dynamics that uh, can dictate or regulate um, the folding of an entire chromatin fiber and entire polymer and and, and that's i think that the connection between two scales uh, at the length scales but over the time scales are extremely fascinating and this is i think something that um, it also came out from my recent work
1: yeah i think that's a good point to end this interview thank you serena for your
0: time and for being on the show
2: thank you Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.